As you said, thinking about who the audience is is, you know, obviously super important. I will sometimes go to the extremes of researching individuals who are within my audience. So I'll think about who are the individuals who will be there or might be there. I particularly want to go through this change. And, and in my preparation, I'll be thinking predominantly of those individuals and how I'm presenting to them. Gainsight presents the Game Changer Podcast with host Adam Joseph. Hello, and welcome to the Game Changer Podcast brought to you by Gainsight. That clip was from today's guest, David Chernick, CEO and founder of Trickle. Today, we're talking about the presentation skills a customer success professional should develop how to build your confidence whilst presenting, the importance of body language, avoiding the death by PowerPoint crutch, and the differences in delivering a presentation virtually. And now, your host, Adam Joseph. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Gainsight Game Changer podcast series. I'm Adam Joseph, the Customer Success Director at Gainsight. Now, in this episode, I want to discuss one of the most important attributes and skill sets that a customer success professional needs to have, and that's the ability to present. Now, of course, there are so many different forms that presentations can take, whether it's on one extreme, which is presenting to hundreds, if not thousands of people at a conference, or or something much more intimate, such as a customer meeting, or even something that can be (laughs) terrifying for some people, which is presenting to an internal group. Now, for sure, there'll be some CSMs listening to this who just jump at the opportunity to present anywhere. But for others, it can cause a huge amount of distress and even countless sleepless nights. So what's key in building your confidence and developing your skills in this essential part of the customer success role? So to help discuss this, I'm thrilled and delighted to welcome to the pod not only one of the leading experts in helping executives from across the enterprise deliver fantastic presentations, but a very good friend of mine as well. David Chernick, welcome to the podcast. Yo, how are you doing, Adam? Yeah, really good. Thrilled to have you on. I've been, a, as well as a good buddy, I've been a, a huge fan of some of the work professionally that you've done. So, so keen that you're going to get this opportunity to talk to a wide, varied audience who can learn from some of the great tips and techniques that you're going to share with us. So, thank you so much for, for being with us. My pleasure. It's great to share anything. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, Dave. You're a man of many talents, of which presenting is just one. Tell us a bit more. Well, I don't think I have many talents, but I do major on a few talents and everything else I let other people help me with. But I come from a a tech-heavy background. I started my career as an intern at IBM, did some dot-com, spent some time at Gartner Group, and then moved into more sort of professional services where I've worked predominantly ever since and set up my own business about 10 years ago to help people sell, basically, and do big deals. And in my spare time, I love DJing, and I find that actually DJing and presenting actually help each other. It's so funny. In in the small number of podcasts I've done in this series already, you are the second 
DJ. <laughs> so I'm not Ooh, sure if yes. there's some themes coming out here, but obviously DJing is a really important thing in many people's lives. Well, and, I know you well enough to know that you like to party, Adam. So. Well, that is true, but mine is more the 80s mega mix rather than some of the, the banging tunes <laughs> that you put on. But out of interest, where is the strangest place that you've ever DJed? I'd love to know. Oh, there have been a lot of strange places, but one that always stands out is a venue in central London called the it's called the Camden Castle. It's called the Camden Castle, and it's basically an old castle that was built on the Camden Canal system. At one point, it was used as a illegal gin factory, Ooh. and it basically looks and feels like a warehouse. It smells of mildew, but it's got amazing sound and a really good backdrop. So, uh, yeah, it's a strange place. Interesting. I've, I've known that area well, but never been there. There's London always delights me in some of the hidden gems still yet to discover. So I'll, I'll definitely check that out. But as I said, your experience and expertise in presenting is something I'm really keen to tap into. And as I mm. mentioned at the front, for, for some people, it can lead to all manner of distress and sleepless nights. So I think let, let's start the conversation in terms of preparation, because so mm. much to, you know, the old adage, Fail to prepare, prepare to fail. So as you kind of leading up to a, a presentation, forget for a moment whether it's in a group or more intimate setting, what, what's the best way as you, as you think about a, an upcoming presentation to put you in that right mindset? Okay, so I mean, you, you kind of said it in your intro to the question, which is about mm. preparation. And there are, there are lots of facets of you know, our working lives when you're in a customer-facing role or if you're dealing with customers where you, you don't really need to, everybody says you need to prepare a lot. You don't really need to prepare that much because you can rely on things like your product knowledge or your knowledge of the client and things like that. But presentations, definitely, definitely need some preparation. And I kind of like start off my own prep and encourage my clients to do the same with thinking a lot about the kind of change that they want to affect. What do they want to happen to the people who are taking part in your presentation so that you're leaving them in a better place than where they were when they started off? You know, And part of that preparation really is in thinking about how you want to educate them, what journey you want them to go on. So part of that would be kind of thinking like your audience. So if you're sitting in the audience, what would you want to hear rather than just right. thinking about what I want to impart? And I think I mean, one of the best bits of advice I've, I've ever had that I always cling to is that even though I try not to come across, I think you can over-rehearse when it comes to mm -hmm. dealing great, with great presentations. But with that said, I often find I, I really want to make sure I've nailed the first, even if it's the first two to three minutes, and I've got a really clear understanding of what my intro is going to be. Because obviously, as you get up there and the nerves kick in, because no matter how experienced a presenter you are, I think actually being nervous is a good thing. It shows that you care. Now, if, if that's taken to an extreme and you're just standing up there like a rabbit in headlights obviously it's not but i find actually if i if i really am comfortable with the first two or three minutes of what i'm going to do then i start to relax and my mind works easier and i'm able to find those words that i wouldn't be able to grasp if i was highly stressed is that something you concur with as well to kind of like the the intro just kind of eases you into it and then just make makes the, the path for a great presentation right so as, as well as thinking about the sort of change that you want to impart and want to bring about as you said Thinking about who the audience is is, you know, obviously super important. I will sometimes go to the extremes of researching individuals who are within my audience. So I'll think about who are the individuals who will be there or might be there. I particularly want to go through this change. And I 
and, and in my preparation, I'll be thinking predominantly of those individuals and how I'm presenting to them. The rest of the audience, I kind of try not to think too much about because I'm assuming that the sort of attributes that they have that I'm interested in as a presenter, they'll share with my key in marketing lingo. I'd call them personas, my target audience. Mm-hmm. And then to the the opening gambit, the, so the, the, the intro to your the first few words and lines that you say in your presentation, a lot is said about whether you should write a script or not read a script and, and that it should be fresh and not sound too over-rehearsed. But I definitely think that writing out word for word what you're going to say in your first couple of sentences is a really important thing to do before. It acts as a crutch, so you know exactly how to lead into it. And it gives you a chance to sort of set the tone and practice the tone that you want right from the word go. Very much like a sort of the, the performance part of mm. uh, dealing with customers. And so most performers will definitely practice their opening riff or their entry onto the stage or the first few lines of their first track. And of course, when you are communicating to in that one-to-many type environment, it's not just what you're saying, but it's also your body language as well, right? So mm. I remember one of the most revealing training courses that I went on was in my early days as a professional. And I've always thought of myself as quite a confident and articulate, articulate presenter. However, mm. when I watched myself back on a video, what I, what I realized was my hands were clasped behind my back all the time and my knee was mm. twitching a little bit. And it was really revealing. And I've always been acutely aware of my body language, particularly when I'm presenting to a large group, using my hands to help articulate a point, using the tone of my voice to maybe press home something rather than just speaking in a flat or monotone way the whole time. Um, Have you found that same thing as well? And what would you say about the importance of body language and the way that you carry yourself to help really make the points that you're trying to make? Okay, so that's something that's often talked about. And actually, you know, I've done quite a lot of media training over the years as well. And somebody like me, I'm quite an animated person physically. And these sort of media coaches would always try and coach me on trying not to move too much. David, your eyebrows keep going up and down. David, you're using your hands and it's distracting and all of that kind of stuff. And after a lot of experience, I kind of found that the advice itself can be a distraction and can often make those sort of quirky body movements and things that other people think might be distracting even more accentuated. So I try and focus more on the messages that I'm trying to communicate than the body language. There are just a few things that I do do, though, when I'm in a live setting. And I I think that I sort of took a moment to reflect on this many years ago when I saw a presentation by the great Steve Ballmer from Microsoft. Mm. And he used to do these huge addresses to thousands and hundreds of developers. There's a very famous entry that he used to make onto stage where he was buzzing with excitement. I remember he was jumping uh, he up and down, wasn't he? Screaming. Jumping, correct, and chanting and screaming. He had these great sweat patches under his arms. And you'd think that that, that was not great body language. He, nobody would have trained him to do that. But the reality is you can't fake it very easily. And human beings are very sensitive. We can spot quite easily when someone's faking it. Mm. So I would always try and encourage people to be quite natural. If you're a naturally quiet speaker, I would recommend getting a mic rather than trying to put too much emphasis on speaking more loudly. If you are a hand ringer or somebody that puts your hands in your pockets, 
I would encourage you to have something to hold in your hand rather than trying to concentrate on not putting your hands in your pocket. Mm. So you can think about yourself and your own particular characteristics and also get help from other people. So you can ask a close work buddy, what are the little things that you notice about my body language when I'm speaking and ask them to coach you on what those are as well. But I don't get too hung up about body language. One of the things I do try and coach in and try and concentrate on myself is making eye contact with individuals in your audience. Now, in a large setting, quite often you'll have a big light pointing at you, so it'd be very difficult to see anybody. But in those situations, I go back to who my key personas are in that audience. And even in my mind's eye, I'm trying to pick them out in the audience. Now, look, particularly in the COVID world that we, we're currently mm. living in, so at the time of recording this podcast, it's, it's June 2020, clearly the, the medium in which you're using to present is going to alter uh, maybe your preparation and delivery somewhat. So if I'm standing on stage in front of hundreds or, or thousands, clearly that, that is a, a very direct one-to-many type way of presenting. But clearly, if we're now using Zoom or substitute that with your web conferencing or teleconferencing mm-hmm. system of choice, clearly there's a slightly different art to presenting through mediums which are remote versus in person. Have you got any advice or suggestions if you are trying to deliver the same presentation but do it remotely as opposed to in person? Or do you think generally the same rules apply? Is it, or is it more important in terms of inflection of your, in your voice, keeping cameras on? What, what's your thoughts there? Okay, so just on the the sort of technical side of things, and we did it before this interview as well, checking the sound is really important. So I'll always make a point to, ahead of time, get on the call and just check with some people that you're coming across and sounding clearly, that your microphone isn't rustling up against your beard and so that you can be heard. And that gives you a chance really to not have to think too much about whether you are heard. I hear a lot of presentations now where people, presenters throughout the presentation will be asking, can you hear me? Can you hear me? And they'll be constantly seeking reassurance that everybody can hear them. Of course, you'll get notified if people can't hear you. So there's really no need to worry too much about what other people are hearing. There are some big differences, though, than the live environment, which I think of as technicalities, really. One is that you don't get the same feedback as you would do in a live audience environment. So you're not generally hearing things like laughter, things like gasps, applauses, snoring. You're not getting that kind of feedback from people. And also you probably have a limited chance to see the individuals in your audience. On a Zoom call or on any of the other apps, you can usually see a maximum number of people on your screen at any one time. So it's difficult to get that kind of feedback and it can feel like you are presenting just to an empty world on that you've also got to realize that you know any slides that you might want to share or graphics are going to appear on different devices and in different sizes compared to in a live setting a live setting you might have an enormous screen behind you with lots of very detailed pictures and clarity on a, a video conferencing call people might be watching your presentation on a handheld device, in which case the image is going to be much smaller, or they might have a terrible connection and really not get very much on the visual side of things at all. 
That opens up a, a great segue into the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is one of the most commonly used phrases that I hear when it comes to presenting is death by PowerPoint. Because, oh, yes. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of people probably overdo PowerPoint or again, Google Slides or whatever you're, you're presenting software of choice mm. is that when you feel nervous or apprehensive, you think, I know what I'll do is I'll use lots of words on a slide so that if I forget mm. what I'm going to say, they're almost there as a cue card that I can read out. But I can guarantee as an audience member, when you sit there and you can see slide one of 212 and every slide just looks like it's got oodles of text, you immediately mm. groan internally and think, how am I going to get through this next kind of two hour session? So what what have you found? In, you know, I've seen people do amazing presentations that are very picture heavy as opposed to text heavy. I've seen mm. amazing ones where there's been a great blend. So what would be your advice in terms of striking that right balance between trying to educate but not not get that death by PowerPoint? Well, the death by PowerPoint and the educating thing are, in my opinion, two separate things. When people think of death by PowerPoint, they're talking about that universal experience that we've all had of sitting there watching somebody read the slides off the chart straight off it. Mm. And, and we all know how that looks. And we kind of like feel, as well as being a bit bored, but we kind of feel a bit embarrassed for the presenter as well. And we make a solemn oath to ourselves that we'll never be that person. <laughs> and yet the majority of presentations still end up that way. And so it kind of begs the question, well, if you know that you're, you don't like death by point and you know that you are doing death by point, why do people not then change their PowerPoint slides format and reduce the number of words or change the type of images that they use? And I think it's that a lot of times people feel like they need some kind of crutch. They, the bullets are there for themselves rather than for the audience. And so rather than thinking of the presentation slides themselves as being your script or as being your prompts with your bullets, it's important to, put, to write those down if you need them, but write them down on a separate, in a separate place, either using the notes fields or just on a printout or on a separate screen. So you always know that you've got your script or your bullets mm. to fall back on. And then you can use the slides in order to back up the main points that you want to say. And that can be words, as you've just said. Sometimes you do want a lot of words. It's not necessarily for people to read or for you to read out, but they can definitely punctuate a presentation. Sometimes it could easily be a chart, but then again, charts themselves can also be very complicated and so on a slide i would generally try and have as few pixels as possible unless it's an actual image a rough a rough rule of thumb would be for me if you're going to have words on a slide is to use really two three or four words on a slide no more yeah, I mean, I've even started to see much, especially over the last 12, 24 months, increased use of things like GIFs, short mm. videos, which I think, mm. again, in, in I think it's if every slide, it becomes a, a little wearing just to see a kind of like funny walk or whatever. I think if used well, and I, I've always been a huge fan of, of injecting, trying to inject at least humor, not even sure. Mm. I'll, I'll leave it to others to say whether I succeed <laughs> or not. But and I think if used well, and I, I think that's what I've always found. There's nothing per se wrong with using 
a small number of words, making them highly visual, animations. Get, I think it's just finding the right, the right balance. And also to kind of come back to what we said something at the beginning of the podcast, it's understanding your audience. If I'm presenting to a, a group of salespeople, customer success professionals, maybe I'm a CSM who works for a fintech company and I'm presenting to a, a bunch of accountants, you've got to mm. understand your audience and what's going to resonate highly with them rather than just thinking what's going to work well for you and accommodating your audience. So I think that's really important. Right. I mean, on, on, on that, just to take that a tiny step further, mm. and as a very practical tip, one that I use all the time as well, is in part of my research about the audience, I want to have a look in advance as to the sort of things that they themselves are looking at. So if it's a presentation for one particular company, I'll just head over to their website and open up maybe some of their own presentations or look at their own personal style, the kind of stuff that they're used to seeing within their organization and mimic some of that a little bit. If they have kind of like a a cartoonish types of graphics on their websites, I'll try and introduce cartoonish sorts of graphics on my presentation. If they are, you know, very strong on very big, bold colors, I'll try and use that in my presentation so that the graphics that you're using on your presentation don't get in the way uh, what you're presenting. And these days we have access to so, so much different sorts of, so many different types of media on our phones, as you mentioned, GIFs and mini videos and little clips, screenshots, memes, all sorts of different things that we're looking at every single day. And if we're looking at the same things that our audience are looking at, then it makes putting those sorts of things on a presentation slide all the more intuitive. Well, one thing I, I know causes a lot of angst. I've seen it a lot in my career and I've seen people turn white at the, at the, at the idea, which is when I've asked mm. one of my team to present internally, whether that's mm. to their colleagues or senior management. And in some ways, they can cope fine when it's a largely unknown external audience, but ask them pr- to present something internally. Do you think it's important to be able to vocalize those fears with your manager and make sure you've got that culture of openness so that I'm not saying that necessarily the manager should then say, well, don't do it, but at least in sure that you're not suffering in silence and actually it can be a great development and it's a great way of honing your skills is to present internally before you do externally but also understand that presenting internally doesn't come without its own stresses and fears yeah i mean just on that last point of what giving a presentation can do for you presenting isn't just about trying to get your message across to an audience There are loads of side benefits you get from presenting, especially if you're presenting to your own peers. And it's kind of like a a peer review in many ways. And that's one of the reasons why it can be so extra nerve wracking to present to your own team or your own managers or people who know you quite well. It's because you know that they are judging things like your level of expertise and know-how They are able to quiz you on that know-how and uh, really sort of test whether or not you know it as well as you say you do. So it's kind of like a a peer review. And that adds to to the angst that people have about presenting. And we can all bear in mind that public speaking is famously one of the most anxious things that we can we can do. I have done thousands of presentations, but I still feel nervous each time. If you have the sort of trusting and open management style within your organization that you can communicate to your manager that you're nervous about it, that's a great idea. It's also a good icebreaker at the beginning of a presentation to give a little bit of background about yourself personally. 
So then people are on your side and that they see the human behind the presenter. Mm. And those sorts of things I find useful. Yeah, we, we, we saw a recent example of that. Many people listening to this would have joined our Pulse Everywhere virtual conference. And our CEO, Nick Meta gave a very personal illustration of this, talking about kind of broken windows, not only that he saw within his own house, so was very open and mm. human about some of the, the struggles that he, he'd had personally, but also used it as an illustration that we all have broken windows in our lives. And I think anyone listening to that couldn't have not have been compelled. And I think it made Nick's presentation just so amazing because he combined both the business and the human together, which was phenomenal. I just want to finish the, the, this kind of pod with, we, we've kind of focused so far talking about a one-to-many, kind of using mm. on the stage or remotely talking and trying to get our message across and the mediums that we can use and the techniques would really help. But most of the time when we're presenting, we're doing it in more intimate environments, whether that's one-to-one meetings or a small group of people. And again, I think what's really important there is the importance to keep it interactive and not just to, mm. you know, not just be on transmit the whole time, but you, you've got to be able to listen as well. What, what techniques do you have to make sure that every engagement that you have with a, with a customer in a, in a more intimate setting, you're actually learning as much as you're, you're presenting and, and keep that interactive element? Okay, so that's a really, really good question because People, when they think of presentations, they often are thinking of large audiences. But of course, as you said, you know, the majority of times it's to, to one person or to a small handful of people. And in those sorts of environments, they have to be more interactive. There's nothing worse, I don't think, than that feeling that you're being sat down by a CSM or a sales executive and having to sit through a slide deck. The old days, if you were going to buy something for the home, like double glazing, this guy would turn up at your house, he'd plonk a paper <laughs> slide presenter on the table and literally flip through slides showing you them. And it's awful, man. I know some salespeople that still do that today. But the idea is that it should be more, it should feel more like a conversation. And so I always keep a pen in my hands. You know, I've, I've even on this presentation, got hmm. a pen in my hands. And the reason why I have a pen is so I can write some notes. These are not notes that, you know, are about things that I'm going to say, but there might be things within the conversation or presentation that they say to me that I'll want to be able to reference. And if I write down word for word what they've actually said, especially if they can see me writing it down, it's incredibly powerful. Firstly, it indicates to them that you are listening to what they have said. And, 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 and secondly, it means you're able to refer back to that point later on in the presentation using their own words. So I do always have a pen in my hand. There are some dangers to this in that they can become too conversational. And if you're really trying to bring about some kind of change as a result of it, it's important to be able to stay focused on that change, on that goal. Mm. So I will write down at the top of the of my notes, what my goal is for that meeting. I'll be very open with the people I'm presenting to what that goal is too. So they know what direction we're going in. And also, and, and writing notes down during the presentation can help on this bit too, is that if you find yourself going down a tangent that you really you know, don't want to go down or it's, it's too much detail for that particular part of the presentation, you can say to people, listen, I've, I've made a note of that and we can explore that further afterwards, but I'm not going to forget that point. So you don't need to worry about that. I, I think you've raised some great points there. Just to pick up on one, I think it's amazing how often 
people go into meetings without a clear idea about what a successful meeting is. You're so focused on just having the meeting that you actually forget the bigger picture is, is this actually leading to actionable change or is it a meeting for meeting's sake? It's so important that it, it, it actually leads to something positive <laughs> rather than just a tick-the-box exercise I've met with this mm. customer. And I think the, the last point I'll make is think of meetings as a three-act play. The preparation, the execution, and then the follow-up. If you're just, and in some ways, the actual meeting itself is the is the easy part. Without the preparation beforehand, without the time, and and some of this just comes down to even scheduling in your diary. If you've just got back to back meetings all day, then you're probably not having effective meetings. So make sure that when you're having the meeting, you've actually built in time in your schedule for the preparation, the meeting, and the follow up. That and that way, you're doing you're helping make sure that you've got you've got a much higher chance of a successful meeting where you've had the chance to prepare properly, but also distill afterwards. Would you go along with that as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the, the, the presentation itself does feel like a performance and it is a performance, but in order to make that performance happen, and this is, I suppose, something that I bring in from my DJing experience, there's a load of stuff that you do beforehand in the context of DJing. I'm preparing playlists and I'm getting used to thinking about who the audience is going to be, who's going to be at this, this gig. And during the presentation or during the party, the real skill is not necessarily in just presenting your music and turning the volume up. It's really in trying to tune in to the people that are there, you know, to keep your eyes on them rather than on your own slides and yeah. on your own uh, record decks, if you like. And then afterwards, to try and see how you can follow up. At the end of a great gig, I'll always wander into the audience or into the crowd and just chat with people. They'll all recognize you because they've just been spending a lot of time being able to see you. I always just assume you're just stealing from the buffet at that point, Dave. I am, and uh, <laughs> trying to finish the leftover drinks. But those things are important, you know, to follow up as well. Look, Dave, this has been absolutely phenomenal. There's just been, I've loved the discussion. There's been some great takeaways, I think, for, for people listening to this. I've only got one final question left, which mm. is, is the old adage true? Does it help to imagine your audience naked or not? <laughs> oh, man. Yes. And what a greater way to finish the podcast. Dave Chernick, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Adam. It's been terrific. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gainsight Game Changer podcast. Please follow, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about all of our episodes, please visit Gainsight.com. This podcast is produced and edited by StudioPod. To learn more about their work, go to studiopodsf.com.